Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. Hey everyone, I'm Karen Stiller. Welcome to the show today. Uh, We are happy to have had the chance to interview Brian Stiller, who is the Global Ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance and a long-standing voice and leader in Canadian evangelicalism. Uh, We explore the E word, meaning evangelical, and whether we should be using it or not. And Brian offers some great insights and learnings from our brothers and sisters in the church around the world. So we really enjoyed this interview. And I enjoyed finally speaking with Brian on the record and not on a dock at a lake (laughs) where our cottages are nearby. Meanwhile, we wanted to thank the Canadian Christian Communicators Association for recognizing the Faith Today podcast as a good one. And we hope you agree. We'd love for you to rank it or review it and like it or share it with your friends. That would be awesome. And just a reminder that you can subscribe now to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. Brian, welcome. Karen, good to be with you today. Yeah, I'm so glad. I've thought about doing this for a long time, so I'm really glad we're finally doing this podcast. And I would like for you to tell us and our listeners about your work as Global Ambassador for the WEA, because I think personally that you have the best job in the world. (laughs) Well, just to kind of put it in context, there are three major Christian groupings in the world out of 2.4 billion Half of those are Catholics. 500 million would be part of the World Council of Churches, which includes the Orthodox. And about 650 million are evangelicals. So the World Evangelical Alliance is, it represents about 25% of Christians. It was formed in 1846. And it really is a global association of 140 nations that have their own indigenous national alliance. So as global ambassador, I represent the world body to these various countries. So I go to generally to a number of countries every year, uh, speaking to pastors, meeting government officials, uh, interloping with other religious communities, encouraging younger leaders, and then writing about my travels. So that's, I'm kind of a, a roving ambassador to encourage generally younger leaders. That's my That's my focus. That's what I love to do. And it's marvelous to see this community grow around the world in the most surprising and innovative places and ways. Yeah. How many countries roughly a year on a a typical, normal, non-pandemic year would you visit? Uh, 15 to 20 countries in a year. Wow. That is amazing. And when you think uh, to maybe some recent travels, again, given I know the pandemic, but has there been a a story or a church or a country where you were like super encouraged, uh, maybe more than usual? Well, Ethiopia stands out in my mind. Ethiopia, of course, is a historic, it's it's an ancient civilization. It has multi-religious communities. But the evangelical church there has been so effective, not only in bringing the gospel, and bringing people to a personal faith in Christ. But its vision as to what it can do in helping people in the various needs, social, economic, agricultural needs that manifest themselves in that Northeastern African community. So when you sit down with the leaders and you recognize not only do they have enormous stature in the country, but they are 
they're humble. They approach their issues with simplicity and yet with brilliance of analysis and serving their community and serving the church. I just, I, I had to sit back in awe at these people and what they bring to their own community. Yeah. And is this right that uh, this is kind of an assumption, I think, that the church in what we would call, I guess, the global south or the majority world, the evangelical church, they wouldn't go through this um, big trying to figure out social justice versus evangelism, you know, doing good versus conversion work or whatever. It's much more holistic, isn't it? Much more so, uh, especially over the last 60 to 70 years as the Western church made an exit from its lead, from the leadership of those countries and indigenous leaders took over. You recognize that, and, and most of the non-Western world, they don't see spirituality as something that's separate from the economic or social or educational factors. They see it all as one general mix. And so there's a, there was a great example in, in West Africa, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund was trying to help in the, in the building of, of the social economic well-being of its people. And they were having no success, but they ran into these churches that were having enormous success. And the IMF said, what are we doing wrong? And one of the leaders said, well, you're asking the wrong question. And they said, well, what, what's the wrong question? They said, well, you're asking, you're asking, how can we give you money to help your social economic well-being be lifted? And the IMF person said, well, what question should we ask? And they said, well, the question that we ask first is, what does the Lord want of us? Mm. And when we can figure out what the Lord wants us to do, then we all have agreement and we work at it, doing it together. So it's that integration of faith into all of life that makes such a difference and makes the gospel, in, in my view, much more relevant and, and I think biblical. So that makes me think about the church involved in public policy discussions and so on, which is so different from our context and culture in Canada and, well, especially Canada, I think. How do you sort of compare and contrast uh, that reality here to there? Here we have this notion of the separation of church and state, and that came out of our understanding of democracy in which no religion should have ascending rights. And though so the building of our, the Bill of Rights, our charter, our constitution, all of that has emerged out of a notion that you take your religion, at least your religious enterprise, in our case, say the church or the mosque or the synagogue, and you, you do a firewall between that and politics. So, Liberal democracy operates on the basis that you don't give preference to one religion. The difficulty with that, it's been taken by, the, taken by the secularists and saying that your faith, therefore, cannot influence your public policy, your public decisions. Well, that's a huge leap from saying we will not let a religious enterprise have preference by government to okay. saying you cannot have your own personal faith as an influencer, as a public policy person. So that has distinguished us. The secularism of, of, of Europe and North America distinguishes us from the Christian faith that I find in the global South. They may go along with the notion that 
you can't give preference to one religious enterprise, but they would never understand you can't bring your faith into the political experience or uh, activity. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. So that definitely leads me to the question of what's been going on in the States lately, where people have really been bringing their faith <laughs> into the political arena and this Christian nationalism we've seen. And uh, now Trump is out of office. I know you've written about this, Brian. Can you share some of your perspective on maybe some of the fallout that we're experiencing in the church? I think the U.S. is going through a major crisis of trying to figure out how the gospel relates to public life. The very thing that I talked about a moment ago is at the heart of their dilemma. And I think their dilemma is exacerbated by their history and their culture in this sense. When America was formed, of course, it was the great world experiment, like the U.S., that has gone through the political travail and creating a political enterprise as they have. But as they were, Christian faith was dominant. That was the dominant form. And this vision of being a light set on a hill was an idea that has been carried into their culture. They use a word called manifest destiny. And manifest destiny simply means that in our country, God is manifesting our destiny as his destiny. And so Americans, they built a religious culture that assumed that America was exceptional uh, that America was especially called of God. Uh, not unlike the Boers felt South Africa was theirs called, they were called of God to inhabit South Africa. And not unlike Abraham, as uh, he was called to, to inhabit the Holy Land as the place of God's enterprise. So you have this notion that God and country are inseparable. Now, as migration has changed the nature of the country, as you have a more of a secular move taking hold of public policy, there was a fear, a deep fear in my view, by many of your conservative religious community that they were losing grip of the Christian faith as being a molder of society and that the secular liberal community was robbing it of this right and of its presence. And so you have this enormous reaction and, and you use the word Christian nationalism. And Christian nationalism, uh, you could actually use the word religious nationalism because, because you have, in Sri Lanka, you have religious nationalism with Buddhism. In India, you have religious nationalism with Hinduism. In Russia, you have religious nationalism with the Christian Orthodox. The same thing in Greece with the Christian Orthodox. You have Christian nationalism with the Roman Catholics in Italy. So you have this in many countries where people believe that the government is the means by which you assert your religious views. So the government gives you favor or that the government holds in trust your biblical vision or your Christian vision or your Hindu vision, whatever it is. And the government is the means by which that is held together and parlayed out into society. So the, the reaction in the U.S. that the liberal left has stolen it is a fear, a deep fear, by religious conservatives that they have lost the ascendancy in the country and that the values that they believe should be synonymous with American values was being taken away by those who don't hold to those values. So it's a, it's a deeply divided country. Yeah. The fear of losing religious ascendancy 
is profound and a belief that Christ, that America should be Christian dominates the conversation. Yeah, no, that's really interesting and helpful to think of religious nationalism instead of Christian nationalism. That's a good, uh, a good nuance and makes it feel a little less strange, I guess, in a way. So when you, in your travels, and I know you spend time in the States in normal times, do you think the whole, you know, sort of evangelical movement has lost some credibility because of this? Or is that over inflating the importance of the American influence in religion? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. One is continental. So you have the North American mm-hmm. continent. And there's no doubt that the use of evange- the word evangelical used by white uh, males to identify their political uh, uh, wish and, and, and attachment to Trump has, has hurt the witness of the evangelical Christian of their view of the gospel. Yeah. So it has hurt, it has hurt that, that name. Now, uh, in our world body, the World Evangelical Alliance, our American uh, alliance is called the National Association of Evangelicals. And they represent about 45,000 churches in the U.S. and millions of Christians. They've been very careful to stay away from this debate. And they, they have shown actually strength in speaking against the alignment of politics with faith. And during the refu- as the refugee issue became one of the, uh, one of the major issues in the last few years, they had stood very much with the care for refugees. So I think that the, our association, speaking about our global body, the U.S. is strong and vibrant, but there's no doubt that the, that the witness of Christ, an evangelical faith which believes in, in, in the, the personal rebirth, believes in the importance of Christ's death and resurrection, it believes in the importance of, of, of the, trusting the Bible as the word of God, and believes in social action and evangelism. Those are the kind of the four pillars of evangelical Christianity. Uh, that has been hurt, and I don't know the degree to which that will be reclaimed in the next decade or so. However, as you go to the world scene, generally the issue in the U.S., this kind of North American issue, just doesn't find its way much into the conversation with other people. It they They don't understand how it happened, and they may have conservative or liberal views of, of, of what social policy should advocate or not. But I find generally within the church, it's a non-issue. And for many, many Christians around the world who are evangelical Christians in their, in their faith, the attachment to that name gives them standing and identity. So, for example, I was in a, a little church in upper, the Upper Nile in, in Egypt. And Upper Nile means south. And uh, he was in, of course, the church is in a Muslim community. And he was having difficulty with, with the Muslim community because they thought him as a little sect, as a fundamentalist sect or a cult. They weren't sure what to call it. But when he as became member of the alliance in Egypt and could say, we are part of a community of six, 650 million people worldwide, all of a sudden, you know, you aren't Catholic, you aren't Orthodox, but if you're evangelical Christian, if you have this world identity it gives you standing, it gives you identity, and it makes such a difference in a community like that. And that is often the case right around the world. So I find that the issue that's been raised in the U.S., uh, you have places like Brazil, 
uh, you have uh, Zambia uh, in in Africa. Uh, you'll have some of those places where you have a dominant Christian community, and they. So, for example, in 1993, I think it was Zambia called itself a Christian country, and they tried to assert Christianity as being the official religion. Of course, when you do that, you run into so many problems out of the Gospels as to what Christ calls us to be within our society. And the use of power, political power, economic power, whatever, social power, whatever you, if you use power as a means of advancing the gospel, you become corrupted by the means of that use of power. So can't the word just be Protestant or would that not work overseas? No, uh, it works in Egypt uh, because Protestant, Presbyterian, Evangelical, those words become, are all interchanged. But the word Protestant over the last, the early part of the 20th century, say in, in, in Canada or the U.S., the word Protestant has come to mean old line liberal churches, like the United Church in Canada, uh, often considered uh, the method, some of the Methodist churches in the U.S. would also be seen that way. And the evangelical community in the early part of the 20th century merged out of that wider mainline Protestantism because they saw the mainline Protestants, the old line churches of the of the 19th century, had moved towards a theology that they that that many Christians felt was really uh, an abrasive use of the of the of the biblical gospel, and so the evangelical church emerged in the 20th century as a as a definitive other, and so in most cases the word Protestant wouldn't wouldn't even be understood, okay. and in places that it is just it wouldn't be appropriate. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. Let's uh, come home to Canada for a minute, so to speak. I think that you are, you know, kind of an elder statesman, uh, not too elder, just a little elder statesman um, of the Evangelical Church in Canada. And I would just love to hear some of your uh, perspective on where we are today as as a movement and as a church and, you know, what you see the next few years looking like maybe. Well, I I think we are experiencing a bit of a, a a move across a divide that I never thought we would see. Let me just kind of go back. When I was leading the Evangelical Fellowship in the 80s and the 90s, my view was that the larger civic society, the political enterprise, was a place that we as the evangelical community should be. The salt and light, the metaphors it was a call to engage in that society because be it education, the arts, government, medicine, science, whatever, those were also places that God called, called his, this is part of his world. But over the last 20 years, there has been such a division within the culture. And so the evangelical church is caught on one side, which is seen as being, most inappropriate and unpolitical, uh, impolitical uh, by much of the ruling elite and uh, civic class. So our view on sexuality, our view on family, those kind of issues seem so anachronistic to what I see as the leading edge within universities and in public culture, the media arts and so forth, that we are so far out of that as to be seen as as curious if not completely offside so 
listen to CBC, mm -hmm. uh, radio or television, or CTV. Listen to the, read the newspapers. And generally, if we would say what we thought, we would be ruled out of order in the most hostile way. I think that there is an increased breach between Bible-believing Christians, if I can use that term in a, in a fairly narrow sense, people who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that personal following of Christ matters, that, that, that the gospel speaks into our world. Those people, because our views tend to have fallen particular patterns over social uh, moral issues, we are so far out of where the general culture is going. That breach I see building and growing. And I'm not sure whether that breach is going to continue to expand. And our faith will be considered so offside as not only to be anachronistic, but maybe inappropriate. Yeah. If that happens, or in the pros, in this, as we do it, as, as we move along these roads, as we follow these cultural shifts, the question is, what do we do? Mm -hmm. And I think what we do is not hunker down, but give, give real care to the solidity of our faith, the teaching of our faith, and the living out of our faith in the culture. Because I think the best way that we can speak Christ into this world where we have such a diversion of cultural trends is to do the good works of the gospel to so love our community that they see the gospel, they see the Christ that we love and represent. And to be, to be caught in the political debate, uh, the intellectual debate, it's going to be so difficult that if we show what the gospel does in the works that we do within society, I think that might be the best way to give evidence. There's a great, there was a great line out of a, out of, a, out of an, an Orthodox bishop in, in, in the Ukraine back in the 40s, the, the, actually the 30s. And they were caught between Russia and, and Germany. You had Stalin and Hitler, and they're both vying for the Ukraine because it's right in the middle. And they're trying to woo them with their various missions of, 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 of communism and of uh, national socialism. So they're, and so he says, what do we do when we don't know which way to go? And his line was, love children. In other words, do good to those that need be good being done to them. Yeah. So that's kind of a, that's my, my latest musings about Canada and where we as a Christian community fit. And I, I'm, I'm finding this conversation more with people and wondering what can we do? What, what is the gospel calling us to do now? But I think we are coming to, a, to an increased breach in our cultural trends within the Christian community and the broader society. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense, and that that feels right. And this question, I mean, in yeah, I think you've partly already answered it just by what you just said. But you mentioned working with younger leaders globally earlier, and I'm wondering, just generally, with leadership advice to younger leaders in Canada, what advice you would give along those lines to younger leaders. Take time to know the biblical text. Don't take a shortcut in learning the biblical text. Learn it well. Be a good student of the scripture. 
be, be open and loving to everybody in your community. Don't build a narrow fundamentalist church that believes that your good works will get you into heaven. It's all by grace. And let grace be the living evidence of your own church and your own relationship to the broader community. And then cooperate with others. Uh, but build the church at strength in new and creative ways. Don't let the old model become the only monitor for, for what you do. Find creative ways of doing church ministry in your town, in your rural area, in your city, in your apartment blocks. So be creative. But start with the biblical text and learn it well and understand how it speaks into the lives of people. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. As we kind of come to a close, I was wondering what encourages you in your faith? I mean, you've been in this work for a while. You've led several significant institutions and organizations in Canada. You're doing this work overseas now. Uh, I know you must pour into the, that well <laughs> to remain strong and healthy in your faith. And how, how do you do that? Well, there's a, there's a, to believe in the mystery of the Trinity, to understand that God, this is God's world. It's his work. It's his church. And to know it's not my business. Mm. Ultimately it's his. And to not make all the problems of the world my problems. They're his problems. And he allows me within the ebb and flow of life, of my own life experience, of family, the community in which I live here in Canada. He is at work. And I'm not going to base my sense of success or of legitimacy on the basis of whether people like me or accept me or whether I'm successful given any kind of monitor, but that this is his world. And to free myself up to live and work out of my gifts so that the spirit can use me, I can be used by the spirit, but also that what he has given me is what I enjoy and in enjoying doing what he's called me to do and gifted me to do, I can more easily flow in the activity of the spirit and the work of the church and in society. So it's, I guess it's not to take myself as seriously as I used to. Oh, that's good. That's really interesting. Thank you. And you know what I look forward to, Brian? I look forward to uh, you barbecuing for me and my family on the lakes in which we both have cottages. <laughs> oh, isn't that a sweet thought? We didn't do it last year. No, we didn't. So we are related, kind of, right? We should tell we people are. because we both get asked. Well, I get asked. I'm not going to assume you get asked, but I get asked all the time uh, what our relation is. So we'll put it out in the, on the record that I am married to your nephew. That's right. You are not my sister. You are not my wife. You are not my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> but we but do have fun together. And we are, as a family, immensely proud of the wonderful work that you do. Oh, thank you, Brian. Well, we uh, it's it's wonderful to be in this work together a little bit when we overlap. I really appreciate those times. Thank, thank you, you, Karen. 
Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.